Well, Robinhood comes along and it's successful with really two things. It eliminates the commission and it also builds a platform that appeals to digital natives. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. The historic run-up in game stock prices was driven mostly by short sellers, of course, trying to manipulate the stock. It was such a crazy situation that the Securities and Exchange Commission decided to consider new trading rules. Again. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks to Joseph Grunfest, professor of law and business at Stanford University Law School and an expert on capital markets, corporate governance, and securities litigation. They discuss the historical context and lessons learned from the GameStop spree, as well as the personalities, roles, and motivations of the different players. Let's listen in. Joe, first of all, a great honor and privilege and uh, to have you unpack uh, certainly one of the great headline issues of the last uh, couple of months. And uh, basically, uh, I know this is something you have followed. I will uh, start, you know, for our audience. Uh, the purpose here is to unpack this, get behind the headlines. Uh, what are the lessons uh, that people should be taking away from uh, the game stop um, and Robin Hood phenomena? Uh, but also, Joe, um, uh, as we have discussed, I'm going to uh, start with a biblical reference to Ecclesiastes and nothing new under the sun, uh, because a lot of what we're seeing play out, even though people may not realize it, uh, actually has played out, albeit on different technology platforms, whether blog sites or you know postings, etc. So it's really great to have... Um, have you on this podcast to explain what's going on. And I'm just going to turn it over to you and, and say, so as you're seeing this uh, somewhat of a phenomena uh, play out, how should be, how should people be looking at what's currently occurring um, with the, with GameStop and its potential lessons for other securities and also obviously vis-a-vis Robinhood and the political response. Well, David, first, thanks all very much for the invitation here. And and let's start by unpacking this a little bit. From my perspective, we are dealing with something that's uh, in many ways in the financial markets fundamentally new and different. Um, What we have is a situation that, yes, as you point out, is is parallel to something that's happened in other forms of communication. but the implications for the financial markets are really quite different. Let me, let me lay that out. One of the things the Internet has done is it's made people who historically have never been able to get together as a group to find themselves easily, uh, to find you know, similar people easily, and therefore to become a social force that they never were in the past. So let's assume that 1% of the population is, for want of a better phrase, a bunch of lunatics, all right? Um, Well, it used to be that the lunatics would have a hard time finding the other lunatics so that you would never be able to get a mass lunatic movement. Um, Think about it that the transactions costs were very high. But now that we have these new forms of communication, the 1% can find the rest of the 1%. And with, you know, let's assume 330 million people in the United States, the 1% is 3.3 million people. 
Well, if 3.3 million lunatics or people who have unusual and non-standard ideas can find themselves on the internet and can form a mass, um, we then have a new type of problem or a new type of challenge that we've never ever had before. And here in the financial markets, what, what we have is the ability of a group of investors who may constitute a very small percentage of the investing community to concentrate their efforts, to focalize their efforts um, in a way that can have distorting market consequences. And, and that, I think, is a new phenomenon. I think GameStop is the first time that it happened, and I don't think we can get comfortable that it's not going to happen again. Um, so a great insight and agree with you just in terms of the amplification of our technology platforms these days. Uh, you and I have discussed, uh, there was a trader by the name of Tokyo Joe, and it was some 20 years ago that uh, the SEC charged him, I think just about 20 years ago. And um, it was interesting because he was uh, posting various picks and suggestions on uh, message boards through emails. Um, he, you know, became a new breed of a so-called online stock guru uh, before he was charged uh, with securities fraud. And obviously, we've come a long way since um, since that particular case. As the SEC looks at what's happened here, uh, wh- what do you think their takeaways are? And obviously, this got very, very political in terms of uh, Robin Hood and suspending trading in GameStop uh, s- stock. Um, and is there going to be a regulatory response, Joe? Great questions. And let's let's divide them into different categories. Let, let's let's put Robin Hood aside for the moment. We can get back to that. Um, and let's just look at this problem from the SEC's perspective. This is a hell of a nut to crack. This is a real tough one. Because you have to look at the politics and the economics and the legality all at the same time. Now, if you look at the legality and you start asking yourself, is there fraud going on here? Is there manipulation? Is there deception? The the answer is almost certainly yes. The probability that you have so many messages being posted and that all of them are authentic and truthful uh, is extraordinarily low. Um, we already know that there were lots of bots that were participating in the process, and if you've got a bot participating and the bot is is pretending to be a human being, well, you've got securities fraud right there. You know, but but the trouble with that is you, you can't go and prosecute a bot. There is no bot jail. All right, there's no special place to send them. Uh, instead, you have to go find out who's operating the bot, what are they doing, are they profiting, are they transacting, what have you. Uh, and for all you know, the, the, the people operating the bot are in uh, you know, Estonia, the Ukraine, uh, who knows where. Um, so you may not be able to get to them, and that may be a part of the process. You can also have natural persons uh, who wind up posting that they're doing X, but they're actually doing the opposite. Uh, you could have natural persons, you know, posting half-truths, uh, you know, outright lies about their views. 
uh, all of it is possible, and given the volume of transactions, virtually all of it is is certain to have happened. Um, but is it economically efficient? Is it legally efficient for the SEC to try to figure out who said what and who was actually lying? Um, from that perspective, these types of frauds, to the extent that they are frauds, flood the zone and create a situation where there's just so much of it going on and so much of it is individually small-scale that it becomes very difficult for the agency effectively to respond. So the traditional individualized enforcement mechanisms may be highly constrained here, except in a few dramatic situations. Well, that means that the alternative is to do something much more blunderbuss and instead to look for situations like GameStop, form the view at the agency level that what we have is a large-scale form of market manipulation, and the SEC has authority under Section 12K basically to suspend trading and securities. So it may get to the point where the SEC adopts a policy where they say, if we see enough of this stuff going on, and the challenge is going to be rationally to define what this stuff is, we're just going to stop trading in the stock. And it's not going to be a short trading halt like New York or the NASDAQ might impose, but we'll, we'll, we'll have a timeout, and the timeout will last a day or two. All right, They have the authority to do that. Uh, and if the agency does do that, um, that may well discipline the market from a totally different perspective. And I want to go back to the point you made uh, that you don't believe this is a one-off situation, certainly not with the platforms that we have, the technology we have. And, um, you know, obviously some people made money from these trades. Um, If you were still at the SEC, Joe, would you be thinking about this as uh, the need for some general deterrence in the market? Uh, a warning that, you know, people who might be behind the bots and, you know, points well taken, the nature of today's technology is, you know, and you see this play out all the time with some of the cyber attacks. It's it's a low risk, high reward. You can do it remotely with reasonable anonymity at scales, etc. cetera. Uh, but if you were the SEC, are you trying to unravel the trade, see who profited, see who might be behind um some of the bot activity and looking to bring a case or cases uh, as much for general deterrence as specific deterrence, recognizing that this may not be a one-off moment? Well, early on in this process, I think, and we are still early on in the process, I think the agency needs to look at both approaches. Um, It needs to look at individualizing responsibility, and it needs to look at a uh, systemic response. I think the agency is likely to find that the cost of identifying individuals who are violating the federal securities laws is really quite high, and that may be a very inefficient mechanism for maintaining market integrity. Now, I've got lots of problems with shutting down trading in a stock for a variety for for several days because it keeps honest people out as well. And, and I'll be the first person to concede that. But these types of situations, I think, may leave us no good choice. 
and the agency may find itself in a position where it has to choose from among a set of bad alternatives. There's no good answer. There's just a set of bad and worse answers. And we may learn that in these situations, the least bad answer, not that it's a good one, is you shut down trading in securities that are attracting that kind of behavior, and hopefully that, that disciplines people, and it explains that you, you, know, you can't do all of this crazy stuff. And while terms such as market manipulation are thrown out, I know that the SEC and, and others are certainly focused on something that might resonate less as a policy matter and more personally, which is it is about investor protections. It is about protecting people uh, who otherwise might be lured into something only to find that more sophisticated and nefarious actors are about to pick their pockets. So I know that is also one of the priorities of the SEC here. Uh, so while market manipulation has a sort of broader context, um, this is about investor protections as well. So, Joe, um, as you, uh, there are a number of issues. It's like uh, every time you have a phenomenon like this, other questions get raised, and there have been congressional hearings, and um, a fair amount of attention is now being paid to uh, what I'll refer to as almost a culture clash that seemed to reveal itself in this. Uh, I don't want to say it was the hip-hop wars of Compton versus Brooklyn, but there was a um, almost West Coast, East Coast, uh, young, young, younger traders versus uh, the more sophisticated institutional ones uh, who were shorting this stock, and a fair amount in social media in terms of trading barbs with each other. Um, I note that Steve Cohn um, of SAC um, had to take down a, or chose to take down a, a social media posting he had put about what happened here because of uh, actually threats he began to receive um, through social media and elsewhere. And so something else was seemed to have been revealed here, and I don't, I, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspectives and thoughts, and obviously there's no necessarily definitive answer here, but it would be great to look at this as not just simply about a stock that was had a great deal of volatility and traded up and down uh, significant percentages, uh, but also what else it might be revealing. Well, you know, let me, let me, let me hit rewind um, and maybe challenge some of the perceptions that you just shared and then amplify some of your other perceptions. First, I don't know that it's accurate to call all of the people who participate in these Reddit discussion groups and the like unsophisticated. If you look at some of the posts, um, they're really quite sophisticated. They, they wind up talking about, you know, how the street hedges out options positions and explains how buying certain options positions are more likely to enhance the effect of the short squeeze and the like. Um, and, and basically, it's exactly the same logic that you'd be using at some of the more sophisticated hedge funds, uh, but it's being shared uh, among a large number of retail investors. 
And what's happening is if they all accumulate their trading power, it can create the effect of a synthetic hedge fund that might have billions of dollars of, of assets under management. So simply because a lot of this activity is retail doesn't mean that it isn't sophisticated. And, and I think many people make that mistake. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, it's clear that a lot of this activity is what I would call sentimental rather than economically rational. And by sentimental, I mean there, there, there are traders who basically said, look, I don't care if I wind up losing all my money. I don't know that I believe them, but this is what they say. I don't care if I wind up losing all of my money as long as I'm able to stick it to the man. As long as I'm able to cause some of these hedge funds on Wall Street, you know, some pain, I think that's worth me losing thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. Um, you know, there's a certain level at which I find that hard to believe. Why is it worth that much to you to cause pain to people that you've never met? Um, but then again, you know, I'm not a mental health professional. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm happy to listen to other people to explain that to me. Uh, and I, certain under, I certainly understand, um, you know, performative art and the uh, idea of political and social and economic protest. You know, I get all of that. But this seems to me to be a particularly expensive and potentially self-destructive way uh, of making a political point. And I'm glad you clarified the term sophistication as you have used it. The way I tend to think about sophisticated investors are the investors who have been involved in the markets for long, long periods of time, who actually do it for a living. People who will think through, as you say, the long-term implications and how volatile the market can be and when and if the SEC can step in and also to understand you know, the basic principles of valuation and long-term investing. So, uh, fair point. And I love the point you made about uh, when enough people come together, you may very well have a synthetic hedge fund with a great deal of power if, in fact, uh, the group holds together. And that may be the point of the bot messaging. But there did seem to be some messages here that reflected the, I'll call it the broader culture wars here in the U.S., some of this may be, you know, continued sentiment in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Some of this might, you know, reflect a view of who controls the political process. And it was no less curious, uh, and maybe because they're following social media as opposed to really have any policy ideas, that you did see um, leading politicians on the so-called progressive side and the so-called conservative side come and weigh in about the actions that Robin took, Robin Hood took to stop trading in this. And I'm just curious whether from a political standpoint, you think that, you know, Congress hearings, uh, political points of view are going to weigh in uh, to look at this issue. And if so, what you think the likely outcome might be? Yeah, no, I think there's another vector at work here. And we, we and that other vector is populism. And you have populists in the Democratic Party, and you have populists in the Republican Party, uh, and the 
pro-tweet, pro-reddit, uh, pro-we-should-let-anything-go-free-speech approach, which I can certainly understand, um, politicians who find it optimal to ally themselves with that kind of a perspective um, are, are just natively going to object to any government action that interferes with the expression of populism, uh, and that would include you know, um, uh, Robin Hood shutting down trading, even though they're doing it for totally different reasons, and, and they obviously didn't want to do it, and it was harmful for them uh, to have to do it. Um, so one of the fascinating things that we see here is there's now sort of a branch of politics that we can call pro-populist, and it has strong advocates in both political parties in ways that make for extraordinarily strange bedfellows. We'll get back to our conversation in just a moment. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. To learn more about RAIN, go to rainnetwork.com slash join to become a member today. Let me switch to something else that came out during the hearings and which um, I know you in our conversations before you were a little bit incredulous that um, people didn't understand the notion of payment for order flow, um, at least people within our network. But I do want to unpack this a little bit because I, I found there was a parallel. You may recall when uh, Mr. Zuckerberg and other leaders in social media and, and um, technology platforms uh, were called to hearings, um, what, a year and a half or so ago, maybe two years ago. And the question went to um, Mr. Zuckerberg, uh, I don't, something to the effect, and I, I remember the politician, but it's, it's irrelevant who asked the question. Um, I don't understand. You don't charge for Facebook. How do you make money? And Zuckerberg looked a little bit incredulous at the question and said, well, advertising, Senator, advertising. And it came to some people's um, attention that Robin Hood didn't charge for trades. And when um, the issue of payment for order flow came up and you had various um, people, you know, testifying uh, from who partnered with Robin Hood for um for the order flow. Uh, I think it would be great to get your perspective. Number one, if you could just explain what that actually means and how it works and your perspectives of whether Robin Hood is and GameStop uh, are a moment in which the SEC might be taking a, a, I can't even say a second look, a you know 10th look or 20th look at this type of model. I think the first thing everybody needs to understand is payment for order flow, and we'll get to what it is in just a second, because you know, part of the problem is it's extraordinarily complicated, and there's a limit as to how much you can simplify it and make it accurate. But it, it's important to understand that payment for order flow is, is very, very, very common in the brokerage industry, and that before Robinhood came along, a very large percentage of brokerage firms would charge a commission and would get payment for order flow. So before the advent of Robinhood, 
what, what you had were brokers making money two ways. They would charge you, you know, $5 for the trade, and then they would pick up some more money for the uh, payment for order flow. Well, Robinhood comes along, and it's successful with, with really two things. It eliminates the commission, and it also builds a platform that appeals to digital natives. These are two things that are going on at the same time, and I don't think most people understand how it's the confluence of those two factors that's really very powerful. So one of the things that we know on the internet is that there's a big difference between a price of zero and a price of one penny. Zero to one, it's a lot. And what Robinhood did was not only did it build a system that was very appealing and easy to use to, to, to the digitally native generation, people in their 20s and 30s, all right? It's not attracting my demographic, people in the 60s. And at the same time, it hit the right price point. Zero, which is the same price point that Facebook uses, that Google uses, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's the price point that works on the Internet. Now, as you, as you accurately pointed out, even when websites have prices of zero, they have other sources of revenue because otherwise they wouldn't be able to cover their expenses and make profit for, for, for their investors you know, and pay salaries for their employees. And, you know, what's the alternative source for a company like Robinhood? It's really two. You've got payment for order flow. And then it's also a freemium model that there are additional services that you can have, all right, where if you use those additional services, you do pay additional fees. So, so there's a sense in which what Robinhood is doing is just like what many other Internet companies are doing, but very different from what traditional brokerage firms were doing by building an added internet layer on to their pre-existing services. So, again, from that perspective, in order to understand the innovation that is Robinhood, it's not just zero commission, and it's not just a great interface that works for digital natives. It's the combination of the two. And that's very important. And from that perspective, and notice I haven't explained anything about payment for order flow. I haven't answered your question yet, David, and I get that. Um, but, but from that perspective, Robinhood has probably saved investors billions and billions and billions of dollars because not only do its own customers get to trade for zero commissions, but Schwab, Fidelity, everybody else has gone to zero commission. So Robinhood, I think, deserves some credit for taking commissions down to zero throughout a very large part of the brokerage industry. And indeed, Schwab has a national television campaign advertising zero commissions. But uh, as a, it's somewhat of a popular trope these days, Joe, when the service is free, you are the product. So maybe you can explain order for payment flow and how the SEC might be re-examining this, or maybe it could be asked to re-examine it by various uh, senators and congressmen. Let me try to explain order payment for order flow using an analogy that people might might get. You go to a used car lot, 
the guy that runs the used car lot, all right, he's got to make money one way or another. And the way he makes money is on this thing that you call the spread. All right, so he will buy your used car for 10000 and he'll cover his expenses and operations by selling the same used car to somebody else for 15000 Now, in the financial markets, we call that the difference between the bid and the ask, you know, but let's, let's just stay with the used car market. All right, the dealer is going to buy a 10 and sell at 15. The dealer is going to buy low and sell high. Okay, that's, that's, that's how it always works. Well, suppose that there's somebody else in the market that we can think of as being like an extra expert shopper. And he knows what's going on with all the dealers in the market. And you want to sell your used Honda, Toyota, Cadillac, what have you, for 10000 And he says, you know, buddy, I think I can get you eleven rather than the ten. All right? And if you want to buy, this intermediary says, look, um, I, I think I can get you the car for fourteen rather than fifteen. So if you have this additional specialist in the market who understands what's happening with all of the other used car dealers, this specialist might be able to get you something that's called price improvement. So rather than having the sellers only get 10, they get 11. And rather having the buyers pay 15, they only pay 14. All right. Now, these, these specialists these days are basically large, sophisticated, high-frequency trading shops. They have algorithms and mathematicians and systems that are set up to be able to figure out how to buy stocks at a price that's a smidge lower and sell stocks at a smidge higher just like in this used car market that I gave you. And what happens is these intermediaries, right, these traders that get price improvement, share some of the economics with the brokerage firms that send them their business. And that's how brokerage firms, and not just Robinhood, I would bet you that it's, it's the majority of brokerage firms that do this, wind up making some additional money from the fact that they've got all of this order flow. They split some of the economics with the specialists who are able to get price improvement. And Robinhood's customers benefit from this two ways. First, they don't pay the commissions. And second, they also get price improvement. So that when they're selling a stock, instead of getting $10, they might get $10 and a penny. And when buying a stock, rather than paying $11, they may pay $10.99. That's, that's basically the story at a high level of generality. And I'm going to share with you some of the questions that have called uh, from our network and from a number of people who are watching the hearings. And... Uh, some of these are more grounded in um, how things work. And in part, I want to draw upon your 
experience, Joe, both as a professor, as an advisor to leading companies and their boards, and also, you know, as a uh, prior practicing lawyer and practicing lawyer, as well as uh, being on the SEC. Um, So there's something called best execution and what is owed to people who are buying and selling. Do you think the best execution is, in fact, taking place with this kind of model? Well, first, I'm going to start by challenging the phrase best execution. Um, You never know what best execution is. I would think that a more accurate phrase is statistically good enough execution on average and over time. Because that's really all that can ever be accomplished. And by labeling a rule, a best execution rule, you, you, you're sort of creating a situation in which there, there's almost an unobtainable um, condition that you're imposing on market makers. If on average and over time you're getting a set of prices that you believe reasonably to be optimal for your customers, even though in some situations they may not be the best and in other situations they may, but on average and over time they work really well, that's the only thing that actually happens in the real world. And to judge people under the rubric of did you get the best expectation, execution, that there was nothing out there at that moment in time that could conceivably have been better, I don't know that that's a realistic way or even a constructive way to look at the world. So great answer. And one of the, quite frankly, a point I wanted to make on this podcast, uh, it is a significant misnomer to talk about this as best, the best execution I think it might be better to call it the on average and over time pretty <laughs> good uh, execution rule. Okay, or, or a, f- a fair execution rule. Um, yeah, pretty darn good execution pretty rule. Pretty darn good, okay. But on average and over time and not necessarily for each individual okay. trade because that can't be done. Okay. Yeah, the, the name of the rule would get a lot longer, but it'd be a lot more honest and accurate. I want to draw upon that because I think, you know, words matter. And what we have found in the, we'll call it loss of confidence in institutions, and it's not just limited to this particular scenario, is very often um, the rules we put in place or the expectations we set for our citizens um, mislead them, and then they get shocked and surprised. So let me pull out another question that, you know, has surfaced. I don't want to name names, but look, uh, hedge funds uh, have been helping to support the system of a uh, no brokerage fee for the trading of stocks by uh, paying for, you know, for the order flow. What prevents them from trading ahead of average consumers and capitalizing on, you know, knowing which way the market on a particular security might be going? Well, number one, in situations where you're breaching a fiduciary duty and otherwise misappropriating information, the SEC has an army, a plethora of rules and regulations that prevent that from happening. 
But what, what happens here is these intermediaries have statistical models and what they're willing to do is pay for the order flow because they expect that the trades that will come in will allow, to, allow them to position themselves on average and over time in a way that it's profitable for that intermediary. All right? Look, everybody in this process is in the process to make money. That's the only reason why they're there. It's not that they get jollies, you know, because, oh, wow, I'm, I'm closing the spread. All right? They're doing it for the money. Let's be honest. And if you don't understand how somebody is making money in the market, you don't understand the market. And if you think people shouldn't be making money in the market, well, then you don't understand the market either. So taking a step back and saying, gee, these market makers make money by buying the order flow, my response to that is, of course they do. Why else would they be there? Um, you know, gee, the brokers make money by selling the order flow to these intermediaries. My response is, well, of course they do. Uh, wh what, what else would you expect in this environment? And the question is whether the rules and regulations governing that process are, are appropriate to protect people's interests in a situation where I think it could be demonstrated that um, many retail investors, and I would suspect the vast majority, on average and over time, are actually benefited by this process. And there's a good body of academic literature that supports that conclusion. From your position, uh, do you think that not only uh, the participants, the buyers, sellers, investors in the marketplace, but are, we'll call it the politicians that we elect who in terms of enact laws and regulations and, and such, do you think they, there is sufficient transparency and an understanding about that basic principle that you've just articulated about why people are in the market, they're there to make money, and if you think they're not making money, you don't understand the market? And I, I was just a little bit, you know, uh, I was taken aback by some of the questions that were raised at the at the hearings. And so, I, I, you know, do you think that, you know, in fact, our elected officials have a sufficient understanding about the market and, and we'll call it in this particular issue, payment for order flow and how this is working? Well, let's break this into two parts. I think some of our, well, more than two parts. I think some of our elected officials are totally clueless on this, and they just understand which positions are politically popular, and they're not going to let the facts get in the way of political popularity. Then you have other politicians who are very well informed about this, and they understand the realities of these markets, and they know what it means to sell order flow in a manner that generates price improvement to share the economics and how, even if it's an imperfect system, it's better than any other available alternative we have given our current market structure. They get that. And then I wouldn't be surprised if there's a group of politicians who understand the economics perfectly well 
but who also rationally calculate that it's in their political best interests to bang the drum and say this whole situation is entirely abusive, um, because that's politically optimal, even though intellectually they know that's not really what's going on. Um, so when you deal with politicians, you, you, you know you can't just deal with what's what's rational, what's right, what's intellectually correct, what's socially optimal. You also have to layer over the question of which position is going to get them reelected, and that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. And sometimes the position that'll get you reelected is one that is not entirely consistent with intellectual integrity. Welcome to America. So as people begin, I'll go back to the beginning of the conversation where you did not think this is a one-off phenomenon. If it's not going to be a one-off phenomenon, uh, one can also, and you know, the listeners should be braced for continued political scrutiny around this issue. Yeah, the SEC has already said that that you know they're going to be looking at payment for order flow. They have to, right? The demand from Congress uh, for further inquiry into this area is virtually infinite. Um, so we know that the SEC is going to have inquiries into into this stuff, and the question is. Will there be any changes? And if there are any changes, what will the changes be? If you eliminated payment for order flow, great, then pay commissions. That's not going to be popular. And we do have a new SEC chairman and um, somebody who is very sophisticated around the markets, as was the prior SEC uh, chairs. Uh, but um, one should assume that this is going to be a priority. And Joe, I know you know this all too well, but I find it very important to remind people when they do not see an immediate reaction out of an agency, an immediate enforcement action, they tend to think, okay, you know, it's, things are, I'll use the term copacetic, but there is a lag time between when the SEC or the FBI or DOJ acts on an issue um, and when it first arises. And sometimes it can be relatively short, but, but sometimes it can take years. And sometimes there could be a case that takes years to develop. And whether it's a whistleblower who brings it to the attention of an agency, it could be a cooperating witness, it could be, you know, just, you know, very, very bare knuckles investigators who are working through things. One should not interpret science um, as necessarily a... um, part of this process. There's a fair amount of art, nuance, good luck, etc. And certainly the, you know, silence or relative silence from the SEC should not be construed with uh, complacency. Um, so an obvious point, but one that I think is worth making. Joe, just, um, and I, I want to, because you're so thoughtful uh, in terms of your lectures and, and, and what you say, so much of what at least I am learning about life in general uh, as, you know, I I get older is that very often it's the elephants in the room, the things that have been going on for a long time, uh, but are tolerated, are um, sort of, I, I don't want to say accepted, but people know happening until all of a sudden, uh, much like the emperor's new clothes, um, the boy uh, or the girl in the audience um, shouts out, there are no clothes on. And what you're seeing, what I, I find, you know, all of a sudden um, can happen is it just takes sort of 
one action or one episode to cause something to be examined in its totality. And um, I th- I, f- I feel we were, certainly we saw that in terms of the Me Too movement, you know, what was going on in Hollywood, inside corporations, you know, for literally generations and generations, and then it wasn't. You see the issues of police conduct or misconduct galvanized by um, both COVID and the single event of a tragic killing, even though the practice and the issues have been long there. And um, I I was reminded about uh, there was a time when investment banking research was uh, the conflicts of interest, which were well known to the street and well known, you know, to sophisticated and, and with a capital S and small s sophisticated investors. But all of a sudden, people were shocked that there was gambling in, in Casablanca and that uh, investment research was tied to investment banking mandates. And so one of the questions I have for you is, do you think we are at that moment here with payment for order flow and and GameStop? And if we have another one of these moments and where, you know, a lot of things are going to be, have to be reexamined, or do you think that with some calm and rational perspectives and, and greater transparency, um, there might be some tweaking of this model, or do you think, you know, this thing is, is potentially, you know, going to be exposed in a broader way? And of course, I'm sure there's some class action lawyers who are, we know, who are looking at this and looking at what happened with GameStop. Yeah. Well, from, from a very pragmatic perspective, I think the answer to your question depends on something that neither of us know. And that is, do we have another GameStop-like moment in the relatively near future? Because if we wind up getting more of these moments before the regulatory system has a chance to come together with a coherent strategy, then that's going to lead to something more chaotic and more political pressure for immediate action. And that's going to be more problematic. So there's a certain sense in which what I hope for is that we have this GameStop situation and it won't be replicated for a reasonable period of time. Um, and the government is able to come up with a strategy, with an approach you know, that's coherent and that people understand Um, And that's reasonably effective. It's not going to be perfect. It's impossible for it to be perfect. And I wouldn't be surprised if the strategy says, hey, the next time we see something that smells like GameStop, we're just going to halt all trading in the security. And that's going to teach people that there's a limit as to how much you can fool around with the markets for these emotional or sentimental reasons. Um, It's a very bad solution to the problem. But it may be less bad than any other alternative we have out there. So if people take nothing else away from this conversation, uh, Joe has long been an advocate of if you're going to criticize something or if you're going to get rid of it, you better know the alternative and the alternative better be better than what you're getting rid of. And um, there's a calm rationality to everything that Uh, I've ever heard Joe speak about in terms of how to look at a situation, how to think about what needs to be done 
and the world is filled with uh, imperfect situations, but also um, perfection is the enemy of good when we think about um, what we should be doing about things. So, Joe, I'll give you, you know, the last minute if you have anything else you want to add, but this has been a terrific conversation conversation and i know our audience is going to find it very very informative and obviously you know more to come yeah thank you very much for the opportunity david and just just one final thought you know during the GameStop phenomenon um the phrase to the moon was really very <laughs> okay um and everybody's going to go to the moon this is going to yeah and you know what i would tell people you can go to the moon but you can't live there right you can't stay there so even if this thing goes to the moon, guess what? It's going to crash. It's going to come down. And all of the money that you think you made on the way up, you're going to wind up losing it on the way down. And let's assume that you know GameStop itself didn't sell any stock into the markets and no insiders were trading. Let's just make that assumption. If that assumption is right, this whole process of the GameStop, you know, GameStop run up and, and come down was a zero-sum process. Every dollar that somebody made on the way up is a dollar that somebody lost on the way down. All right, that's the simple math. That has to be true. And it can be interesting to see, and I bet you the SEC will do the analysis, how much of the money was made by retail on the way up and how much of the money was lost by retail on the way down. Right? And how much was made and lost by institutional investors who also participated in the process. And I think that'll be a very, very interesting piece of the fact-finding operation that I hope the SEC is doing and that they release. I still remember the warnings about trees don't grow to the sky, So, but your point about you can't live on the moon is an even better one. And very often the stairs going up a lot slower than the elevator going down. And the process, Joe, of going through the trading records is not only a laborious one, but one that the SEC, you know, tends to do exceptionally well, witness some of the insider trading cases that have been brought. Thank you for those insights. Stay tuned. And as always, appreciate the time and I look to the continued conversation, Joe. To the moon, David. To the moon. If you liked what you heard today and would like to learn how RAIN helps members monitor relevant risk developments and more efficiently respond to and mitigate key threats, visit us at RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. <laughs>